We're delighted today to have as our guest uh, a man who has written 30 books. I became acquainted with him by watching on television several Christian programs had, that he was on that I had seen. He has uh, written these 30 books. One of the books I use every time I preach along the patriotic line is his book because it is one of his books is absolutely this thick, full of quotes that uh, quotes by the founders of the country and so on. It's a wonderful book. He has a television program. It's on uh, DirecTV and Roku called Faith in History. He is on the American Minute uh, radio program. It's on several hundred stations. You can find it on AmericanMinute.com. I saw him on the Eric Metaxas show and on uh, Dr. James Dobson's programs that focus on the family. And so uh, we're just glad to have him here today. His name is William Federer, and I want you to give him a good Baptist Temple welcome as he comes today. William, good to have you today. God bless you. Good to see you. Well, join me in thanking the Lord for such a tremendous pastor right here at Florence Baptist Temple, Bill Monroe and his wife, Norma. Thank you, Lord. Well, I, my wife has heard me speak for 30 years, and she decided to pick out the best stories, and we put them together in a book called Miracles in American History. And these are stories where it looks really bad, and people pray and have courage, and things turn around. And I sort of consider it a continuation of the book of Acts, right? So you have Paul is in prison and they pray and there's an earthquake and he's freed. And then Paul is rescued from a shipwreck. And so these are some stories that can inspire us that even though times might look in a crisis, uh, God moves. And sometimes he likes to wait until things look hopeless. And then he raises up little nobodies with faith and courage to do big things. This is just our turn. And now we broke away from the most powerful king on the planet. The king of England was a globalist. He was a one world government guy. The sun never set on the British Empire. He had India, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada, Barbados, Bermuda, Jamaica, and America. And America's founders decided they didn't like a globalist, one world government guy to tell us what to do. So they broke away and flipped it and made the people the king. So the word citizen is Greek. It means co-king. We pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic. A republic is where the people are king, ruling through their representatives. So we're sort of pledging allegiance to us being in charge of ourselves, right? So when someone protests the flag, what they're saying is, I don't want to be the king anymore. And um, anyway, so I'm going to share a couple of these stories. The Declaration of Independence, by the way, mentions God four times. Laws of nature and of nature's God. All men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, appealing to the supreme judge of the world and reliance on the protection of divine providence. And so we break away from a king, right? The, 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 in Europe, they had this idea that the creator gives all the power to the king and he dispenses it to these lowly subjects below. In America, we, we leave out the king and we say the creator gives the rights to each one of us and we're all equal and we choose from amongst equals who's gonna fix the potholes in the road and so forth. And so a copy of the declaration was rushed out to George Washington. He has it read to his troops. And then he appoints chaplains to every regiment and he says the general hopes and trusts that every officer and man will endeavor to live and act as becomes a Christian soldier, defending the dearest rights and liberties of his country. 
And then at Valley Forge, Washington gives an order. To the distinguished character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to laud the more distinguished character of Christian. And then later, some Indian chiefs bring their youth to be trained in American schools. George Washington said, you do well to wish to learn our arts and way of life, and above all, the religion of Jesus Christ. And so the Battle of Cowpens, it did not happen too far away from here. And so it's toward the end of the Revolutionary War, the British have a Colonel Tarleton, and he's nicknamed the Butcher because the, at the Battle of Waxhaw, there were 300 Americans surrendering, and he sends his soldiers out with their sabers, and they hack him to death. And so this young Tarleton, the Butcher, is chasing the American army of Daniel Green. And he leaves, um, he's the, the uh, this battle takes place at Calpins, and the British are chasing the Americans. And so Daniel Green decides to pick where to fight, and he picks in front of a river. Now, if you're going to fight, you don't want to fight in front of a river, because if you lose, it makes it hard to run away. But he did it on purpose because he wanted to lure this Colonel Tarleton. And so Colonel Tarleton has his dragoons. These are really fast horses. And he sees these Americans in front of a river, and he goes, these fools, and he tells his men to charge. And while they're at a full gallop, uh, Daniel Morgan has the militia in front, and they're known for shooting a couple times and running away. And so this Colonel Tarleton sees these militia, and, he, and he's charging, but behind them are the Continental soldiers, and they won't run away. And so the British are charging, the Continental, the militia fire once, fire twice, and then they act like they're gonna run away, but the Continental soldiers stop and turn around and level their rifles, and at point-blank range, they shoot and kill 100 of the British dragoons. Well, the ones that ran away, they just go in a circle and attack from the other side, and they capture 800 of these British dragoons. Uh, the Colonel Tarleton rides away, and when the British General Cornwallis hears the news, he was leaning on his sword, he leaned so hard, the sword snapped. <laughs> and so he's furious, and he's going to chase the Americans. And so uh, General Morgan meets up with General Nathaniel Green, and they make a hasty retreat north out of South Carolina to North Carolina, and the British are chasing them. And the British General Cornwallis has his army with heavy supplies, and so he's leaving his supplies behind, but then he doesn't want to um, get the Americans to get him, and so he sets them on fire and burns the supplies. Well, they get to the Catawba River. The British are two hours there after the Americans had crossed. And lo and behold, the river had uh, gone down before the Americans had crossed, but then there's a flash flood and the river rises, so the British have, are delayed. And then uh, the red line is the Redcoats, and so they chase them again to the Yadkin River. The Americans cross, the British show up before they can cross another flash flood, and they're delayed. And then it happens again at the Dan River. And here's the historical marker. Boyd's and Irwin's ferries to the west were used by General Nathaniel Green in his passage of Dan River in mid-February 1781, while Cornwallis was in close pursuit. I mean, they're watching the Americans get out the other side, but this river rises and they are delayed. And so the British commander, Henry Clinton, writes, here, the Royal Army was again stopped by a sudden rise of the waters, which had only fallen almost miraculously to let the enemy over, who could not else have eluded Lord Cornwallis's grasp 
so close was he upon their rear. This was a miracle. And so the British uh, have destroyed their supplies, and after the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, they're ordered to wait at Yorktown for British ships to bring more supplies. And that's when the French showed up, blocked the British ships, and they're forced to surrender. Uh, here's Yale President Ezra Stiles. He says, should we not ascribe to a supreme energy, talking about God, the wise generalship displayed by General Green, leaving his, the roving Cornwallis in his helter-skelter, ill-fated march into Virginia? And then George Washington said, we have abundant reasons to thank Providence for its many favorable interpositions in our behalf. It has at times been my only dependence, for all other resources seem to have failed us. Now, the word providence in the 1828 Webster's Dictionary says the care and superintendence which God exercises over his creatures by divine providence is understood God himself. So they use that term a lot. And Chief Justice John Jay, this glorious revolution is distinguished by so many marks of the divine favor and interposition, and I may say miraculous, that when future ages shall read its history, they will be tempted to consider a great part of it as fabulous, as exaggerated. And then um, uh, another quote is uh, Franklin. In the beginning of our contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard. They were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And so our founders understood that it was a miracle that we were breaking away from this globalist king of England, and God showed up several different times to um, uh, come through. The treaty that ended the Revolutionary War starts off in the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. Right? The Treaty of Paris. It having pleased divine providence to dispose the heart to King George III to forget all past misunderstandings and so forth, and then done in the year of our Lord. Uh, America were, was 90, uh, at the time of the founding, 98% Protestant. Every colony was started by a different denomination. Virginia was Anglican, Massachusetts was Puritan, Rhode Island was Baptist, New York was Dutch Reformed, Delaware and New Jersey were Swedish Lutheran, Maryland Catholic, Pennsylvania Quaker, Connecticut, New Hampshire Congregationalists. They were all Christian, just different denominations, and they didn't get along. And they tar and feather each other. But then when the revolution started, they had to work together against the king. After the revolution, their attitude was, we may not always agree on things, but you are willing to fight and die for my freedom. I need to let you practice your faith and they began to tolerate each other. But America was started by Christians. And um, here's a representative, James Meacham, 1854. Down to the revolution, every colony did sustain religion in some form. It was deemed peculiarly proper that the religion of liberty should be upheld by a free people. Had the people during the revolution had a suspicion of any war, of any attempt to war against Christianity, that revolution would have been strangled in its cradle. So uh, we took the power of the king, gave it to the people. And, uh, but one of the other things I think is interesting is um, the revival that took place. And so you had, at this time, uh, a black man named George Lyle. He was 23 years old. He heard the gospel during the Great Awakening, and he was converted. He wrote, I saw my condemnation in my own heart. I found no way wherein I could escape the damnation of hell, only through the merits of my dying Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
and he was attending the Buckhead Creek Baptist Church in Georgia with his master, Henry Sharp. His master was so impressed at George's preaching that he freed him. And then George Lyle gained a following and organized them into a congregation, the Silver Bluff Baptist Church in Beach Island, South Carolina, 1773. It's considered one of the first black churches in America. And uh, there's the mark, the, the, the historical sign. And when the Revolutionary War threatened, George and his members uh, moved to Savannah, Georgia. They met another uh, black man uh, who had a church, that started a church in a, a guy's, Jonathan Bryan's barn. And so Andrew Bryan was converted. He was freed. He became the pastor and uh, first Bryan Baptist Church and uh, one of the first black churches in America as well. But it, the first one was in South Carolina. And then that church grew to 700 members, changed its name to the first African Baptist Church. And uh, George Lyle then went to, as the first missionary sent out from America to another country, he went to Jamaica. And he uh, began a Baptist mission. And by 1814, he had 8,000 converted in Jamaica and dozens of Baptist churches founded. Right, a miracle that here you had somebody that had been a slave and he, and he got freed and started the first black church in America in South Carolina. Now, one more story. The um, British during the War of 1812, they came into the capital of the United States with 4,500 troops. And Americans had just run away and they just walked in. And so they go up to the White House and the British, uh, and Dolly Madison, by the way, had seen this panic in D.C. and she gets the painting of George Washington taken down and she rides out of Washington, D.C. while the British are marching in. I mean, it's like right there behind her. Well, the British Admiral George Cockburn goes into the White House and sees the table set with food. He sits down, eats the food, and then sets the White House on fire. And uh, then he goes to the Capitol building and all the Americans had fled. He has his soldiers sit in the chairs of our congressman. And he goes to the podium and he says, who votes to burn the American Capitol? And they all say, aye. And they burn the U.S. Capitol building. And then they uh, set fire to the, the Treasury and Library of Congress, attacked the Navy Yard. Well, then uh, the weather begins to grow into a thunderous roar. A tornado's touching down. And it's a lightning is striking where the British soldiers are. Uh, the tornado knocks off roofs and chimneys on the British, even lifts up British cannons and throws them yards away. And the violent winds slap horse and rider to the ground. And the book Washington Weather recorded this British Admiral George Cockburn exclaiming to a lady, great God, Madame, is this the kind of storm to which you are accustomed to in this infernal country? To which the lady replied, no, sir, this is a special interposition of providence to drive our enemies from our city. <laughs> and so the British are driven out. Uh, they have to go back to their ships on roads with downed trees. Then the rains come and put out the fires. And uh, two of their ships were blown ashore and others had damaged riggings. And one British historian wrote, more British soldiers were killed by this stroke of nature then from all the firearms the American troops had mustered in the feeble defense of their city. So this was a miracle in American history. We don't teach our kids about it, but God intervened to help protect us. James Madison was the president. He said, the enemy by a sudden incursion has succeeded in invading the capital of the nation. 
During their possession, though for a single day only, they wantonly destroyed public edifices. Independence is now to be maintained with the strength and resources which heaven has blessed. And then he says the two houses of the national legislature expressed that in the present time of public calamity and war, a day may be recommended to be observed by the people of the United States as a day of public humiliation and fasting and a prayer to Almighty God. Could you imagine the President of the United States calling for a day of fasting and his blessings upon their arms, a speedy restoration of peace, of confessing their sins and transgressions and strengthening their vows of repentance? You know, I've read through every address by every president up to George W. Bush, and, and then I wrote some other books after that. But they did these proclamations of fasting. Um, Zachary Taylor, the 12th president, had a day of fasting during a cholera epidemic in 1849 where 150,000 Americans died. And Lincoln had two days of fasting in the Civil War. Even Woodrow Wilson had a day of fasting and prayer when we entered World War I. That wasn't that long ago. And so, um, and so I found that when they repent, they confess their sins and repent, God cannot bless us when we're in sin because if he was, he would be, in a sense, giving consent to the sin saying it's no big deal and he blesses. And if God gives consent to sin, he's denying his just nature, right? And he can't do that. And so I was trying to find a way of explaining it uh, like to a Sunday school class and I used magnets. And so if you can imagine two magnets, one represents God and the other represents you. And the God magnet has two sides. One side says, I wanna bless you. And the other side says judgment, right? Blessings, cursings, Deuteronomy 28. And the you magnet has two sides. One side says repent and believe. And the other side says doubt and sin. And if you have your repent and believe side facing God's I want to bless you side, the magnets stick together. But if you have doubt and sin, God still wants to bless you, but the magnets flip the wrong way and they won't touch. I mean, Jesus went to his hometown in Nazareth and could do few miracles because of their unbelief. He wanted to do the miracles, but they had doubt and it wouldn't connect. And then sin, God cannot bless sin because if he blesses sin, he's giving, you know, that he would be denying his just nature. And so if we insist on having doubt and sin, God's magnet flips around to judgment and it, boom, <laughs> sin attracts God. He's a just God. And so all throughout the, the Bible and all throughout these presidential addresses, they talk about confessing our sins before God can bless us. You know, I was trying to find a, a way of um, explaining the gospel, did a new book called Believe. And we talk about American history and how we're unique in the world because we get to be the king of our own life with a little K. And then all of us together are the king of the country with a little K. But we have the free will opportunity to surrender our lives to Jesus, the king of kings. Right. And um, and so I thought, well, let's zoom out and look at all of creation. Why did God make us anyway? I mean, why did he even make us? In 2003, they focused the powerful Hubble telescope on a spot in the sky where there was nothing. Tiny spot. It was the size of a grain of sand held between your fingers at arm's length against the night spot, sky. Tiny spot, nothing there. After 11 days, they developed the images. In that little spot where nothing was there, they found 10,000 galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars in each galaxy. And this is the picture. It's called the Hubble Ultra Deep Space Field. It is the furthest picture ever taken away from planet Earth. 
It's not an artist's rendition. This is the picture. And every dot you see is a galaxy with hundreds of billions of stars. And now with the James Webb telescope, you can see it even clearer. And um, they saw that light travels in waves, with blue being the shortest and fastest and red being the slowest. And so they saw the red shift, which means these galaxies are moving away from us. And they looked in other directions. They now estimate the observable universe is 93 billion light years across and still expanding at the speed of light. And the largest star they found is Stevenson 2-18. It's a super gas giant. It is so big. If you were to place Stevenson 2-18 in our solar system, it would engulf the orbit of Saturn, the sixth planet from the sun. We're the third planet from the sun. Could you imagine one single star that big and God made it all and he made you? Why would he make you? What could you possibly offer a being that is that powerful? Nothing, except maybe something. What's a galaxy anyway? It's a bunch of rocks. Hot rocks, cold rocks, vaporized rocks, molten rocks. A rock cannot love you. So it's almost like sometime in eternity past, God said, you know, been there, done that. I can make everything. I would really like someone in my image that could love me. Now it gets interesting because love by definition must be voluntary. The moment it's forced, it evaporates. So in the context of everything God controls, time, matter, space, energy, he intentionally created one tiny thing. He does not control your will. Now, he could control it if he wanted to, but that would defeat the very reason he made us different than everything else. And he doesn't need your love. He's not incomplete in your love, somehow completes him. He doesn't need your love, but he wants it. Parents don't need the love of their children, but they want it. I mean, you're made in God's image. What's the most important thing in your life? Well, somewhere at the top of the list, it's loving and being loved. Could it be that loving and being loved is a big deal to God? And the more you love someone, the more you want that someone to love you back. God loves you infinitely. He has an infinite desire for you to love him back, but he will never force you because the moment he would force you to love him, he himself would know he's forcing you to love him and he would know your response is not a love response. So he'll never force you. And um, he loves everything he created. But the question is, could what he created love him back? All the inanimate things, galaxies and planets, they can't love. Animals follow instincts. You know, I looked up the word angel in the King James Bible. It appears 289 times. Never once is the word love used in any of those verses to describe an angel's relationship with God. They worship God, they praise God, they glorify God. The word angel means messenger. They deliver God's messages. They smite God's enemies, deliver his judgments like in Egypt. They're heavenly witnesses. Jesus says, I'll confess you before the angels. And they rejoice when a sinner converts. They are mighty beings, they are powerful beings, but they are not made in God's image and Jesus did not die on the cross for angels. They were made for a purpose. What purpose were you made for? We're not mighty, we're not powerful. Guess what? The word love is used all throughout the Bible to describe men and women's relationship with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Psalms 91, because he said his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. Jesus rose from the dead and said, Peter, do you love me? We are beings uniquely created with the ability to love God back. 
You know, a king can have a castle and he can have really powerful soldiers and really smart staff, and then he can have children. So we're, we're uniquely created for the purpose of loving God back, but he'll never force us because the moment he would force us, he himself would know he's forcing us and we know our response is not a love response. So he'll never force you. The second thing is, um, how can God give you free will but still be in control? You know, God created light and light travels at 186,000 miles per second. It's a perpendicular wave in the electromagnetic field, right? Einstein's theory of relativity is the closer you can travel approaching the speed of light, for you, time would slow down. And if you could travel the speed of light, for you, time would stand still. God created light. He's faster than light. So for God, time stands still. We'll never comprehend that. But there is a verse in the Bible that says a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Imagine experiencing one day as if it's a thousand years. In other words, we are living in slow motion compared to God. God exists in the ever-present now. I am that I am. When you're in God's presence, you can't think about the past. You can't think about the future. You can't even think. You just experience. I'm in the presence of all power and all beauty and all love and all awesomeness. So for God to create our reality, he had to create a little space-time bubble where everything moves in slow motion compared to now. And so the speed of light is actually slow from God's point of view. In physics, it's called the speed of causality. It's the delay between cause and effect. The fastest two points in the universe can communicate in a vacuum. Now, why is that important? Because we get to make our little free will decisions, but we're moving so slow compared to God, he can readjust every electron in the universe before time moves to the next nanoframe. Right? It's like you have a GPS on your phone, you make a wrong turn, it recalculates. What if the guy in the car next to you makes a wrong turn and his is recalculating at the same time? What if everybody in the city, what if everybody in the world's making wrong turns and it's recalculating? In other words, we make good decisions, we make bad decisions, and we're so slow and God's outside of time, he can readjust every electron, so his will is gonna take place. So it's our limited free will inside the context of his unlimited sovereign will. And it works because he's outside of time. So he can give us free will, but he's still in control. So God, created us as beings that can love him back. He created time, so he's still in control. And there's a third thing, he has to hide himself behind his creation, because if he ever revealed himself to you in all of his universe creating omnipotent power brighter than a trillion trillion suns, your response, if you didn't melt, would be like the apostle John in the book of Revelation, I fell at his feet, is dead. It would be instantaneous and involuntary. In the presence of all power and all awesomeness, it would be involuntary. And God's like, I can do involuntary all eternity long. I'm interested in this voluntary thing. So he hides himself. People say, if God's real, why doesn't he show himself? Because the moment he shows himself, your free will is gone. In the presence of all power, it would be involuntary. And the same hiding of himself that allows us to have free will necessitates that we have faith, right? So God creates us as free will beings that can love him back. He creates time, so he's still in control. He hides himself. I was thinking of a way of explaining this. Imagine a billionaire has a son who goes to college and he flies in on his private jet, drives up in his Lamborghini, Rolex watch, gold rings, fancy clothes. He's gonna have every girl on campus wanting to meet him. But if he lays that aside, and drives up in a clunker. He's got holes in his jeans. 
the uppity girls are going to ignore him. But then there's a girl that likes to study with him in the library and they eat together in the cafeteria and they become friends. And she takes heat from the clique for hanging around this nobody guy. But she believes in him. They fall in love. They get engaged. And then, <clears throat> then one day he says, hey, I, I want to take you back to meet my dad. And they're like driving up to this castle mansion. The girl's like, whoa, you didn't tell me about all this. He knows that she loves him for him, not because of all of his stuff. If Jesus would have come in his glory, every political ladder climber would say, oh, I'm your friend. No, he's born in a manger. It says in Isaiah 53 of the Messiah, there was nothing in his countenance that would make us want to desire him. He only wants those that love him for him. So he creates us as free will beings. He's still in control. He creates time. He hides himself so that we have the free will opportunity to respond. But there is a fourth thing. He's just and he cannot help it. He's just, which means he has to judge every sin. If God does not judge a sin, by default, he would be giving consent to the sin. It's called the rule of tacit admission. And it's in a wedding ceremony. The pastor says, we're doing the wedding vows. If anybody's against this, speak now or forever hold your peace. If you are silent at the wedding ceremony, your silence is giving consent to the vows. If there are sins and God is silent and not judging the sin, by default, he'd be giving consent to the sin. And if God gives consent to one sin one time, he denies his just nature. He denies himself. He ungods himself. He's kicked out of heaven. And he is not going to get kicked out of heaven. And he is not going to deny himself. And he is going to judge every sin. So he can never be loved back. Because if it creates free will beings, hides himself so that we have free will. But if we step out of line one time, he has to judge us. Because if he doesn't judge our sin, he's giving consent to the sin. And he's denying himself. And he cannot deny himself. So he can never be loved back. Until he came up with a plan. He actually had the plan before he created the first electron. And the plan was his own son would become man, would become the Lamb of God, and he would take the judgment we deserve upon himself. So God is just in that he judges every sin, but he's love in that he provided the Lamb to take the judgment for the sin. Abraham and Isaac are going to the top of Mount Moriah. Isaac says, Father, we have the wood for the sacrifice. We have the coals for the sacrifice, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And it has a double meaning. I'm trusting God will have the ram up in the bush, but the other is God will provide himself as the sacrifice. And that's what happened. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten son of God in the plan of redemption that was hidden from ages. It was a hidden plan. It says, if the princes of this world had known, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. The apostle Paul called it the mystery of the gospel. In this hidden plan, Jesus, the son of God, became man and took the wrath of God upon himself that we deserved. You know, you um, say, well, God's just, and there's one Jesus, there's billions of us. We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve eternal damnation. How can, how can one person pay for all that? Jesus is divine. He experienced judgment in a dimension we will never comprehend. It says a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Jesus experienced that day on the cross as if it was a thousand years. You know, you read the book of Revelation. I've read it a thousand times, still trying to understand it. But one thing seems clear. 
It's God that is pouring out the vials of judgment in the book of Revelation. Lamb breaks the seal, angel throws the center, angel blows the trumpet. It's like, why is that? Well, this is the final judge. God is a just God. He has to judge every sin he missed along the way. So you can't get 10,000 years into eternity and say, God, there was a sin way back when and you didn't judge it and you were silent. Were you giving consent to the sin? Is there a part of you that's unjust we didn't know about? Uh-uh. It says the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. And the angels cry out, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Nobody's going to question for the rest of eternity that God judged sin. But that's the final judgment. He won't do any more judging for the rest of eternity. But in that sense, Jesus had the book of Revelation judgment poured out on his head. Jesus took the judgment for every sin that everybody would ever do upon himself on the cross, experienced it as if it was a thousand years. That's why he was sweating drops of blood. You know, I have a degree in accounting, so I like things that balance. You take an eternal being, Jesus, who is innocent, suffering for a finite, limited period of time. It's equal to all of us finite, limited beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. Let me say that again. An eternal being who is innocent, suffering for a finite period of time, is equal to all of us finite beings who are guilty, suffering for an eternal period of time. Infinity times finite equals finite times infinity. An unlimited being suffering for a limited period of time is equal to all of us limited beings suffering for an unlimited period of time. Jesus experienced the equivalent of eternal damnation in all of our places, and he is the only one who could have done it. And out of love for the Father and out of love for you and me, he became the Lamb. Charles Wesley wrote the hymn, Amazing Love, How Could It Be That Thou, My God, Should Die For Me? Isaiah 53 says, It pleased the Lord to crush him. And then he rose from the dead to prove he was who he said he was. Jesus is the Lamb of God. It's God's plan to be able to love you without having to judge you. It's the just God's plan that he can love you and you can love him back throughout all eternity and not have to worry about being judged because all the judgment you deserve went on Christ. He rose from the dead to prove he was who he said he was. This way, you and I can approach this universe-creating, limitless, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, and all-just God without having to worry about being judged. Because all the judgment we deserve went on Christ and we are in Christ. We're covered with his blood. We have his name on our forehead. And then he fills you with the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit reaches out through you to love a lost and dying world, sharing God's love with them. So instead of you doing good works, hoping to earn brownie points with God, you're already accepted by God through faith in the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit reaches out through you to love the unlovable, rescue those who are unjustly sentenced to death, defend the defenseless, feed the hungry, clothe the naked. You get to be a part of God's plan of loving the world. So today, if you've not yet put all your faith in God's lamb that he provided, this is your day. The God who created time and adjusted every electron, adjusted it so you would be here right now today and hear the message of his love for you. You'd be watching right now. This is God's time for you to surrender your heart and to trust 
in the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world.